and welcome to Curious Objects, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm Ben Miller. They say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, and in the antiques world, the sincerest form of imitation is reproduction. Now, I've always been fascinated by reproductions. For one thing, they represent a genuine love for traditional forms and designs, but they also show a commitment to learning and preserving and passing on craft techniques that could so easily be forgotten techniques that have been refined and refined and refined through generations in which if just one generation fails to learn them, well, the knowledge could vanish forever. We've seen this happen many times, uh, and as a silver dealer, I'm keenly aware of just how few silversmiths today have that deep in their bones kind of skill, especially when it comes to historical techniques. But when it comes to silverware, there's one company which is maintaining that craft today and the tradition of handmade silver cutlery in the antique style. That firm is James Robinson here in New York City. Um, They've been on Curious Objects before talking about some of their Victorian jewelry, but today we're going to hear about the silver side of their business, because they, in partnership with a silver workshop in Sheffield, England, produce and sell the best historical-style silver flatware being made today anywhere in the world. I'm joined first by James Boning at their shop in New York, And later I'll be speaking with Craig Kent, who runs the firm's workshop in Sheffield, um, and he'll talk us through the actual process of handmaking these pieces. Um, But first, James, thanks for coming on the show. Of course, Ben. Always a pleasure. Now, your firm sells reproduction flatware in various historical styles, mostly English flatware patterns. When did that all get started? So the workshop as it is now... um, started actually in 1894, but they purchased a workshop that had been open since the late 18th century. Uh, and before that was a workshop that was passed down from master to apprentice. So um, we purchased um, C.W. Fletcher uh, in 2001, but have been working with them since I think it was the 1930s or uh, 40s. Um, they were C.W. Fletcher, now Fletcher Robinson, and they had purchased actually um, a company that was, I think, William Brewis and Sons, who had kept going from Francis Higgins, and that was in the late 18th century. So there's a little bit of a legacy here. <laughs> yeah, we, we can trace it back right now to 1510, the master-apprentice relationship, going back through some very famous um, early spoonmakers like Nicholas Bartholomew and... Um, um, I forget the gentleman's first name, but Brew, B-R-U-E. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, I didn't realize yeah. there was such a, you know, a, a, a real genealogy going on there. Yeah, um, actually, Ebenezer Coker is another person in the master-apprentice relationship all the way through. Wow, okay. Well, silver geek listeners are uh, uh, going crazy right now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, the few of us, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, in a minute... I'm going to be talking with your workshop manager in Sheffield um, to take a, a close look at the process, the the craft, and what sets it apart. Um, but talk to me about the the quality of these pieces, because um, I, you know, I said a minute ago that they're the best being made today, um, and, and you didn't pay me to say that. I I really think that's true, um, because as far as I know, all the other quote unquote handmade silverware out there is is. Uh, cast, you know, mass produced, and and at best, it's hand finished. Um, so, what's different about James Robinson flatware? So, what we do um, is we make everything starting as um, the English would say an ingot, 
Um, but for you know the layperson, a, a bar, a, a small bar of silver, different sizes for different pieces of flatware, but it is annealed. So it is heated and hammered, and basically that stretches the silver and compacts it. And what that does is it allows it to be stronger. This is how silver would have been made in the 17th, 18th century and, and earlier. Um, what makes ours different is its uh, density and its strength because most silver, as you said, is uh, machine made. So even the few other firms that do some hand finishing, they start off by stamping out uh, from a sheet of silver, a almost formed piece of flatware that then they do you know, hand touches to, they, they finish it. Our flatware is different because what it does is it allows you to use it daily. It allows you to even put it in a dishwasher and it will last the way that 18th century flatware um, does. We started off selling it, filling in more modern pieces like the iced teaspoon or the butter knife with antique services because it was the only thing really made the way that the antique flatware was. And as we kept selling it, people started asking, can we buy a full service of this? And of course the answer is yes. Um, and we found that as, as you know, Ben, it's harder and harder to get a uh, full service of Georgian or earlier flatware that yeah. is in good condition, that is the same maker or even the same few makers to really round out a full service of quality. Um, and people started wanting it to just, you know, if they're going to spend those amounts of money, sometimes they wanted to just, you know, make it easier and get something which is as good, it just doesn't have the age. Right. Yeah, but, it, but it's made using essentially the same techniques again we'll get into more detail on that with with craig but uh yeah a, a lot of the same properties um that an 18th century service would have had yeah um, we use a lot of the modern conveniences with it like torches and uh um things like that that in the old days they would have had a little bit harder time with exact heat and precise heat but as you said you'll speak to to craig about that yeah well so so with me you're preaching to the choir um but but give me a sales pitch because you know for skeptical listeners out there um what is so great after all about handmade silver cutlery right um for me generally my sales pitch has to do with um the feel so the thing that's very hard about selling this flatware is that you don't just look at it online and buy it. And so many people nowadays don't want to have to come and feel it and pick it up. But anything of quality, you can feel the difference. I know coming into this business, and I'm sure you, um, with your with your job, um, have been taught you have to feel things and you have to see them. And when you feel the flatware in your hand and you begin to use it for eating, there is a sensation. It's a very tactile experience. Um, and I think that people that are unwilling to to feel it won't ever necessarily understand um, but you know when you are putting together your home you give nice touches and almost every element you get a nice couch you put art on the walls you you buy nice things to make you feel at home and feel comfortable but the one place that people seem to really have let that go is that they seem to buy stainless steel flatware which doesn't have good weight and doesn't necessarily feel nice in their hand it's just it's all about a look and it's all about looking a certain way but eating is a very 
personal experience and can be almost a very, dare I say, sensual experience. It's, it's your hands, it's your body, and the way that things feel, you might as well take enjoyment in it. And I think the key is, is other pieces of flatware that you can hold, whether they're sterling or not, don't offer the same experience that ours does. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's something just to to um, riff on that for a second. Sure. You know, the actual experience of using it, um, to get very concrete about it, 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 it really is different from stainless steel um, cutlery. Yeah. You know, it's the metal is highly conductive of heat. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're eating a warm soup, the spoon will warm up in your hand, which is just, mm-hmm. it sounds like an inconsequential thing, but it's, it's a real delight if you're eating it, ice like cream with, with it. It's like with televisions, they backlight them now for the color to enhance the experience. I agree that yeah, the cold yeah. and the warm, it really enhances your experience. It makes you feel more, more part of what you're eating. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and and i guess you know eating we think of as as being one sense of you know taste or maybe two if you add smell into that but touch is really a significant part of it as well and and mm-hmm. for your cutlery to be enhancing that experience um i i find to be really rewarding i i completely agree i think that you know, often when you describe food, you describe how it looks, but you use words that you would actually use for touch. You know, oh, it looks squishy. Oh, it looks, you know, firm. <laughs> you know, they yeah, use words yeah. like this to describe the food, but you're not picking it up with your hands mostly. Um, and I agree. I think, I think the tactile nature of eating is sometimes lost. Now, you talked a minute ago about using it every day, about putting it in the dishwasher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, people often save their their fine china and their silver and so on for special occasions. You know, people will right. come into our shop and say, "Oh, you know, uh, I hate having to polish my silver when I take it out for Thanksgiving." And you know, my response to that is generally, "Well, if you're taking it out once a year, then of course you're going to have to polish it. Whereas if right. you're using it regularly, then the tarnish actually comes off with use, and it doesn't require nearly as much maintenance." Um, what do you say to people who are in the habit of, you know, one or two meals a year with their nice things to try to convince them to get more use out of it? Well, I do my best to try to convey to them that, you know, eating isn't just something you do once or twice a year and that this is something that, I mean, I know for me, I have two children. I make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I pull out a silver knife to make the sandwich for my children. I love that. Um, and, you know, I have a, a bowl of ice cream or bowl of cereal, same thing, because you can use this to enjoy all year round. So I say to them the same that you do. You use it more, and the more you use it, the less tarnished it will be. Of course, it does tarnish as silver. If, you know, you go on vacation, it can tarnish a bit, or, you know, if you're not using it as often. Uh, I live in New York City, as you do, Ben. We eat a lot of Chinese food. <laughs> that also sometimes with the salt, the sodium levels in it can do that. Eggs are something that I usually recommend you rinse off right away. But that would be standard with any silver, no matter if it's mine or any other company. Um, I don't actually treat my flatware in a special way compared to what I would if it was something else, because it's meant to be there every day, like your standard flatware should be. And I think that's part of what I, I try to use to sell it. I try to sell people on 
that enjoying food doesn't only mean Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, Hanukkah, whatever you celebrate. It's an everyday experience. We eat food at least two, three times a day. And every one of those can be a little kind of adventure, you know, a little break from the rest of our life and something that we can sit and enjoy. And why not add one more thing to, you know, to that to enjoy it. And I think that's something our flatware can can do. Now, you guys sell, uh, you know, actual antique silver, um, as well mm-hmm. as other antique objects and jewelry and so on, um, side by side with reproductions. And, and I mean, you also sell contemporary jewelry. D- mm-hmm. Do you think about um, the the reproductions differently, uh, or or do they sort of fit into part of the same craft lineage, or how how do you sort of think about that? I I have trouble with the with the reproduction because I know it's defined as reproduction um, our flatware, but we do also have reproduction silver that you know these workshops didn't make this style for a long time, but as I explained at the beginning, the lineage of our workshop and some of these patterns, some of the molds that they have, you know, copper molds just to make sure that the finished product looks right, um, are 200 years old and they've been making some of these patterns for that long. So I kind of look at our flatware more like a car production that each year there's just a new model. Um, ours just happens to be the same model every year. Um, but I, um, I look at it as, as, as you said at the beginning, it's almost a form of flattery to the earlier um, designs. Um, the thing that I find the most interesting, frankly, is I, I get younger people coming in and choosing you know, our, our Triffid uh, pattern, which dates from the 17th century, and they have a very modern home, a very modern fl- uh, you know, table and, and, and porcelain, and, and they find that it's very clean and it's very modern, mm. and, um, but yet it's you know, almost 300 years, uh, or more than 300 years old now. Um, and it's just very interesting to see, um, there was an article recently I read about how younger, the millennial and generation X like cleaner, simpler things. Um, but for a time through, you know, through our history as a business, people wanted shells and scrolls. And, um, I think it's interesting to see the reproduction aspect of it, to see how things come back into fashion. Yeah. What's your pattern? My pattern, I, I have uh, Queen Anne, and um, I do have some Triffid pieces because uh, uh, as we grow and, and mature, our tastes change. And Queen Anne is very standard for us, which would be um, what we call a Hanoverian pattern since we have two Hanoverian patterns. Um, and um, basically, the other Triffid is uh, what I think I've come to really, really love. I think it's timeless, and it was, I think it was the first. British flatware pattern that had matching forks and spoons. Well, th- thank you so much, James Boning. Um, we're we're going to take a quick break and we'll sure. come back to get the inside story of how these pieces are made. We'll be back in just a minute to talk with Craig Kent in Sheffield. But first, I just want to take a moment to say Um, Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate the comments and suggestions that you send to me at curiousobjectspodcast at gmail.com. If you have ideas for guests for future episodes, um, I'm all ears. I love hearing from you. If you like the podcast and you want to help us out, the easiest thing you can do is just to leave a rating or a review for us on the app that you're using to listen right now, whether that's uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify Um, That really helps new listeners to find their way to the show. Or if you want to do that a little more directly, 
uh, please tell a friend about us, someone you know who likes antiques or just interesting stories about old things. As always, you can find pictures of the objects we're talking about at the magazine antiques.com slash podcast um, or on Instagram at antiquesmag or uh, on my Instagram at objective interest. Thanks. And here's Craig Kent. Welcome back. I am joined now by Craig Kent, who manages the cutlery workshop in Sheffield, England. Um, Nice to speak with you, Craig. And you, Ben. And you. Now, I want to start out with um, with you, um, because I'm curious, how does one uh, wind up in this very uh, obscure and archaic (laughs) sort of business? Um, Well, to be fair, um, I'm a a cabinet maker by trade uh, many, many years ago. Um, And then um, through my youth, I fell in love with a young lady uh, who is now my wife. And her father um, was the former director uh, of the business. Um, And through getting to know him over the years, um, he was a a hand forger um, by his trade. He was set on by C.W. Fletcher Silversmiths Limited um, as a young man, uh, and then rose to the rank of uh, director. I was in sales, um, and when the business was purchased um, by James Robinson, I was asked to come into the business to take up the sales reign because um, to try and increase sales and run the office as far as the paperwork, etc. Because formerly that was all done by the engineers' office staff. Right. So um, you actually had a background in um, in craft already with the furniture. And then transitioned into the silver. What? What? How difficult was that? Um, to be fair, um, I, I I loved. I was a cabinet maker. Um, I worked for. I, I left college. Worked for Viscount Linley's company. Um, with I think it, his partner was Matthew Rice. Uh, I think it was New Kings Road or on Kings Road. The office was, hmm. but the uh, the workshops were down in Sirencester, uh, in a place called Daglingworth. Um, then I went to work for a, a, a guy who made solid oak furniture, everything by hand, the dovetails, we did wooden hinges, etc. Um, and so I've got a, an understanding of craft, if you like, and hand-eye coordination. Yeah. It's, I'll not say it's the same thing, it's, it's a different material, um, but we're now, you know, sort of I'll inspect and look at different pieces that we we create um i've got a feel for it if you if that's if that's right um but i'm not a silversmith myself Uh, we've got uh, very very highly skilled um and experienced craftsmen who create what we create um but as far as a craft you know we we are the the story of a living craft um or that's how i like to think of us hmm yeah, well, so talk talk me through that craft because, um, you know, we I, I spoke earlier with James about the difference between machine made and and handmade, um, but but it's really quite a significant difference both in terms of the process itself and in terms of the result. And um, I, I'm I'll encourage listeners to go to the magazine antiques dot com slash podcast to see some some uh, pictures and. 
um, videos uh, about how the the process works. But um, but talk me through that. I mean, can you tell me about the life of a spoon or a fork, sort of from from start to finish in the workshop? Uh, yes, in a in a nutshell. I mean, each and every single piece that we create um, starts off as a, a a bar of silver or a slit of silver. Um, we use a number of different size bars, um, as in section, um, depending what we're going to create. Uh, you know, a soup ladle comes out of a, a piece of silver that's obviously a lot larger than a, a salt shovel, um, mm. etc. So the, the craftsman will take a coil of silver, um, cut it up into a slit or into slits when we're doing dozens or half dozens, um, which are at the correct weight, which then they will forge out. Um, depending on the piece, it will depend on the number of stages. By a stage, I mean the annealing process where they will heat it up with gas and air torch, um, work it on the anvil with the hammer um, out to a, a certain point where they can feel the silver hardening because it's obviously a, a work hardening material. So once they've heated it up, they'll take it to the first stage where they can't push it any further or you're liable to, to, to mm. fracture the silver, etc. Um, so that... And, and how do you know when you have to anneal it again? Is that just a matter of, um, the, of feel and, the, and yeah, experience? The, through experience, that they, they will feel, and again, it changes on the different piece that they're doing, um, as in the section of silver that they're working. Um, but they will feel by, you know, by the feel through the hammer of whether it's beginning to get too hard again. Um, so they're not being able to move it and move the metal where they want to move it in order to create the piece that they're, you know, they're aiming to create. So how many times uh, are are they likely to go through that process for, for a single piece? Uh, again, that depends on the single piece. You know, a salt shovel doesn't need as much hammering as a, as a soup ladle. Um, but mm-hmm. generally, you know, any anywhere up to sort of seven or eight times uh, the annealing process. Um, but again, it, it depends on the size of piece um, that, that we're creating. I mean, we've, we've made... And, and when it's being... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say we, you know, we, we've made sort of basting spoons three foot, nearly three foot long in in the past. Wow. Um, really? Which, yeah, not not very often, but you know, we we have made them. Um, so it it depends on what you know. I mean that that piece, it, it took one to hold it and the other to hit it. You know, because it was so big. Yeah. Um, yeah. You can't sort of hold it in a in a pair of tongs. Um, or someone else. I, I'm curious when you're when you're doing the annealing, um, did, you you have to get that uh, that piece of silver up to a fairly specific temperature, right? Uh, yes, but I couldn't tell you what temperature that is because again, we do it by eye. The the craftsmen know by heating it up when it shall I say a a, a glowing orange color, um, they will know that that's at the right temperature where they can then work mm. the silver for the stage that they're, they're working on. So they, they go by colour. Um, yeah. And in the winter, it's easier because we've not got the sunlight coming through. So, it, you know, it changes. They may have sort of covers over their anvils to, uh, to, to protect the sunlight. 
or to, or to you know hide the sunlight from the uh, the ambles because again they'll they'll heat it they, they go a little bit on time as well but they'll you know essentially it's by knowing what color the silver is then they'll take it from the anvil onto the uh, sorry from the hearth onto the anvil and then yeah. begin to work it with the with the hammer and tongs well wow. so and at the end of this process uh, after all of the hammering and the annealing and the hammering and the annealing um w- w- what do you end up with um what we call a blank um which uh, it's a blank that we call it you know it's totally hand forged so we we are able the big difference between mass production and the way that we produce we forge each and every single blank and put the metal where it's needed for such as on the back of bowls where there's a the rat tail on what we call rat tail or queen anne pattern um you know which is a, a decorative piece and a strengthening piece on the back of the bowls but whereas in a, a cross roll blank that you know more mass produced uh, cutlery will be formed from that's a flat piece of sheet so you can't have the they'll still put a rat tail on it but where the rat tail is formed it's obviously forms thin creases down the side of it mm. so it's not got it's not got the meat of the metal where the you know the pattern if you're doing a, a, a fancy piece as we call it the pattern pieces um they can't put the metal where it's needed you know on the on the yeah. tip of a bowl all our blanks um are forged on the tip of where if it's a spoon where the bowl's going to be um on the tip of the the bowl it will be thicker um because obviously you know in years to come i mean we like to think that we're making the antiques of the future um it's where all the wear will take place whether it be a, a teaspoon uh, right. that's stirring the bottom of the cup over years um you know sometimes we re, you know rework old pieces repair old pieces and the forks tend to um if it's a person who uses a, a left hand you know the fork in the left hand then the the right hand prong as you're looking at the fork will tend to wear down because that's where it's getting stabbed mm. into the piece of meat or you know whatever it is um, that they're, they're eating and over the years you'll find that the forks will sort of angle um through where well it, it's interesting that you're talking about even even when you're making the blanks you're you're already thinking about the the wear patterns yes. um, that it's going to take on over years or decades or centuries of of use yeah definitely and and it it goes back even at at that very early stage in the process you're thinking about where to um you know concentrate that metal you can tell a hand forged piece because the tip of the bowl on a spoon um will be you know thicker than Mm -hmm. the if it was just made out of a, a sheet of metal um, we create our sheets of metal, as in they, we create our own blanks, but we can put the metal where we know it's going to be needed to to create a, a lot stronger, a lot better, a lot harder, a lot longer wearing um, piece, which, as I say, they, they are, you know, they will be the antiques of the future. So once you have a blank, uh, what's the next step? Uh, again, depending on the piece, but if it's a, if it's a a spoon or a ladle um, then that will 
obviously be forged out so it's obviously a lot larger where the the bowl's going to be that will then be scaled um where we will have a number of different scales hundreds of different scales for different shape bowls etc um we will scale around the bowl it will be formed into where the shank meets the bowl what we call the neck um that will be uh stamped um using a a press um where we we sh what we call shank the piece and that just forms in the dies or the shanking dies just forms the the roundness um or the shape of the 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 neck um then we scale it as in we draw around it we will then hand file round to the line of the scale um so that we know that that shape will when we put it with the correct bowling punch uh, under the drop stamp to when you make the bowls you first draft them in which is you'll run a, a tin or they used to use lead and tin um lead initially and then lead and tin to just make it a bit harder but we now use tin um solely and we heat the tin up and again on on the videos on the website you'll be able to see it but we we heat the tin up so it's molten we will then put that into the what we call the chuck um in the drop stamp and in the in the top chuck you will have the bowling punch which is going to create your bowl and that bowling punch will be lowered down into the tin the molten tin well it'll already be down there and then we pour the tin in around it which then gives us a shape of the bowl that we're wanting to create we will then put the the blank i mean the blank will have been um as i say it'll have been shanked it will have had the top end as in the pattern if it's queen anne early english um hollow rib pattern that will have been sized out partially it will have been stamped to put the pattern on it will have been tailed if there's a tail or a heel on the back of the bowl and that's done on the under the press but then we will come to bowl it and we will put it over the tin once the tin's hardened off which only takes sort of you know a minute or so we'll put that over and then bring the the bowling punch down and draft it in which is sort of hit it slower we don't give it a full mm. weight of the uh, the press oh sorry the drop stamp to to come down on it we'll sort of draft it in to form the shape um and as long as it's you know lining up correctly etc then you know at the end we will give it a, a, a couple of drops of the uh, the hammer as it were what well, the bowling punch it'll come down and form the the bowl we then take that into the filing shop where it's struck off which is basically making the top of the bowl um flat so you get that nice round or you know mm. the shape that you're wanting um the fash which is formed by striking off will be taken off um and then the the shank will be filed up all by hand um each in you know each individual piece it will be filed up smoothed round um and then ready for the the buffing shop where you know the the we smooth file it get it to a stage where it's all smooth filed 
um, the buffing shop will then take the piece and then again using uh, well what we call pumice now um, it's we, we mix pumice uh, it's like sand we used to use Trent sand from the river Trent but that was many many moons mm. ago um, so we use pumice and oil vegetable oil um, to then lift up uh, the, the buffer will pick that up and it's it's used as an abrasive really um, to then smooth off the, the piece um, inside the bowls or inside the prongs we go down using different um, buffs different shaped buffs for the different you know processes that we need um, down, yeah. down the roots of the prongs the insides of the prongs um, they will buff, and again, they're using the pumice constantly to, you know, work the piece uh, into its final shape. And thereafter, wow. it then goes into the finishing shop where it will be polished up. Um, we use different rouge, which is again a, kind of an, a, an abrasive or a polishing powder um, to get the. We use two finishes really. The, predominantly, we use the antique finish or the butler finish, um, where we will take a piece and polish it fully up to bright finish, is what we call it. Um, uh-huh. And then we will apply the butler finish through a. Um, it's like a, a dolly or a, a, a wheel, uh, which slightly scratches, in, for the want of a better word, slightly scratches the uh, the piece to give it that antique replica look um it won't give it won't give it a patina that's only built up over years um sure but it'll it'll stop it being fully bright polished um and it'll uh, it'll give it the more of an antique look or a butler's finish as we call it uh-huh which is what people tend to associate with with silver more than anything yes yes i mean you know any bright piece that you have You've only to wash it, you know, a few times and it naturally will have scratched with other pieces unless you're going to, you know, sort of uh, wash each individual piece in a bowl of water, warm water, you know, individually. But if you're going to put six six forks or spoons in the sink um, in the bowl to wash, then, you know, they'll, they will rattle around in the bottom of the bowl as, you, as you're picking one up to wash. Sure. Well, the, I mean, it's an incredibly intricate process. Um and certainly, you know, a great deal more complex than I think most people yeah. think about or consider when they're yes. when they're using yeah. cutlery. <laughs> well, you know, you know, most manufactured pieces or mass-produced pieces, they are out of a die. They're a full-length die, and they will be bowled yeah. up, bent, and set, uh, which is a bend on the the neck of the spoon or the fork, um, in in one go. Um, Whereas we do that totally by hand, so the the filers will take a a copper sample of the piece that they're creating, and then they will bend each and every fork or spoon to that sample. So hopefully, in yeah. years to come, you know, you come back to add to your collection or you know to your service. Then uh, if you order some more, then you'll be getting exactly the same piece. Because how yeah, we do yeah. it hasn't changed in, you know, since God was a lad. So uh, well, <laughs> that's uh, that's the next thing I wanted to ask you about because 
you know, the, the methods that you're describing are certainly quite familiar for, for, for me. And, you know, as I think about um, the 18th or 17th or, or 19th century silver that, that I work with. Yeah. Um, what would you say are the major differences or, or how major are the differences between the process that, um, that you use in the workshop today versus, you know, how, how similar pieces would have been made uh, two to 300 years ago? Fundamentally, they are exactly the same. Um, through, you know, modernization or the industrial revolution and mechanics came more into it, you know, such as the drop stamp, we've now got a motor on top of the drop stamp, an electric motor, but we still have to lift it by a, a long belt. Now, mm. you know, years ago, and in the former premises where where they were, um, you had sort of long, long belts, but running on wheels, which, you know, were quite dangerous um, in certain, you know, scenarios. But yeah. so, you know, modernization of, the the drop stamp has come along um things like the the bowling punches i mean we've we've got bowling punches in the workshops you know the fact that the bowling punch is steel and that forms the silver into a what we call a female the the tin um and forms that shape up it's still a steel punch that's been hit or dropped into that silver bowl area. Now, years gone by, we've got punches in the, in the workshops, which they're all, you know, they might be eight inches long, six inches long, with a, a bowling punch on the end of them, all forged. But the top of the the bowling punch is, is like nailed over. And that's where, I don't know whether it was the apprentice that used to hit them, but the, the master craftsman and his apprentice would bowl them up but you'd literally physically hold the bowling punch or a piece of metal, you know, for with the bowling punch on, and either the master craftsman or the apprentice would hit the other end. Now, over years, we've got them where they're just, like, nailed over. But that's how they used mm. to do it. They used to hit it with a big hammer. Well, but now we've got a, a, a drop stamp, which, again, right. it forms the bowling punch over the, the silver bowl and still forms it. But that's that's a difference that you know we don't hit it with a hammer anymore because um, you might get your fingers. So in it's there, doing it's which, doing the same thing, just a little bit. Uh, yeah, it's, a little bit. Um, yeah, it, it's modernised more predictably. In, in in that you know in that aspect, it's it's more mechanical, but it's still you know I mean now when we hold a a blank over the bowling punch, the the craftsman's finger is a few inches from you know a, a sort of a a very heavy chuck coming down at a, a fair old mm. pace. Once you let go, you can't stop it. Um, so the idea yeah. is not to have anything in the way apart from what should be in the way of it. Right. As in the, the spoon right. bowl. Um, other than that, then we still hand file, we still hand set, um, you know, the, the necks, the angles that you want on, on the pieces. We still ha hand bend the tips of the, uh, you know, what we call the top ends, uh, just to get the the bend with the patterns that we create we because we do it by hand um you can have you know certain patterns bent up bent down depending traditionally a spoon will always 
have been bent, what we call bent down, because spoons traditionally, as you'll know, were laid down on the table with the bowl facing down. So mm-hmm. the, that's why, you know, they, they bent, if not, they wobble if they're bent the other way. But some patterns right. are bent up, some patterns are bent down. Um, so it's, you know, it's personal choice, but it's, that's the beauty of how we create the pieces. If you go into James Robinson, for example, and you say, well, you know, I, I love, I love these forks, but can you make them with four prongs or they're a little bit big those, can you just make them a bit smaller or, mm. you know, um, got a family member who's got really big hands. They'd like them a quarter of an inch, an eighth of an inch, three sixteenths longer. Can you do that? We can mass produce yeah. stuff that comes out of a die. Cannot unless they're going to go to the trouble of having a new die cut. We've made yeah. pieces yeah. before for people that um, we, well, we once made. I think it was twenty-four player settings, but one player setting for the gentleman who purchased the silver. Um, he had, I, I believe, it was a, a, a gentleman. It could have been a lady, but. The client, shall we say, had arthritis, so they needed the handles to be bulkier, you know, but in keeping with the pattern, I I believe it was early English. So we made some sort of heavy duty pieces, one play setting for the client, but the rest of the table was set out exactly the same as you know stand what we call standard pieces. I mean, I hate to use that word because our pieces are not standard. But they are to us. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so we're able to create, uh, on the planar patterns, we are able to create anything you like within reason. But as I say, we, we've made basting spoons three foot long before, um, you know, from one piece. That's of incredible. <laughs> and, <laughs> I would love to see I, that. I can send you some pictures, um, you know, yeah, of, please of the, do. how we made it sort of thing. But what what I still find fascinating, Ben, is the fact that, you know, I've got sort of a, a little embassy pattern salt shovel in my hand now, and that is made exactly the same way as, you know, a three-foot basting spoon or, a mm. you know, a 12-, 13-inch soup ladle or gravy spoon or, you know, any of the pieces. It's forged, it's cut to size in the ingot, the slit, it's for it's heated it's annealed it's forged out for as many stages as the piece needs it's bold it's bent it's filed it's polished exactly the same way um, apart from the yeah. three foot spoon because that did because there one one held it in the tongs and one hit it with the hammer um right. because it was physically too big to you know to work to work by one person but we've yeah. you know we've, yeah. we've had a number of different pieces um that's you know upon request you know they, they might send us um a, a stale a stainless steel piece and say well can you make those we've made what we call a, a paellius fork which is kind of a, a spoon bowl but it's it we cut the, the prongs into it um and mm. it's a fork as well um napoleon's knife fork you know we've made those in the past whether it be a, a lobster pick, um, you know, anything, you can have whatever size you like, you know, if you've got any particular uh, requirements. 
but that's the beauty yeah. of what we can do um, and we love a challenge you know um, we quite often get sent to ideas that James may have um, you know Craig can you do this and you know I'll speak to the guys and it's like oh well, yeah I think so and all they say is we can try one um, so yeah. we'll try one <laughs> Um, you know, and we'll send them over either by photo or physical piece over to uh, James Robinson and they'll decide whether it's, you know, it's right. They may tweak it. They may, you know, have opinions on it. And if it can be done, then we'll do it for them. What's the, uh, what's the strangest request that James has sent over to you? Uh, (laughs) Uh, I don't know. He keeps he keeps us guessing. To be fair, I know he sent <laughs> us some pieces um, which were hinged in the middle, um, and we because we cannot find a hinge as in a fork and spoon, so you can literally wine and dine and go to a restaurant and take your own uh, flatware. Oh, I see. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we couldn't get a hinge to be that. You know. Mm. They're just not made, I don't believe, anymore. We we, we did some digging around, but we, we, it's still ongoing. If I hear of anybody who can make really small hinges, you know, we looked at sort of the hinges that, you know, spectacles are, are made with and stuff, but uh, uh-huh. that one's still, it's, it's still in the, still work in progress. Um, okay. But, uh, but yeah, it's, again, we, we love a challenge and uh, occasionally we get asked to, you know, to, to scratch his heads and, think whether we can do it and uh, it's not very often that we fail I would like to think yeah 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 so if you've any oh ideas gosh. then just you know give, okay. give us a call and well, uh, I'll send you the picture of the large spoon and then uh, so if you want to order one of those you know then uh, it's it's no problem we can make you one that is very exciting <laughs> and actually I'm going to take this as a personal challenge to try to come up with something <laughs> that you can't make well yeah okay yeah we're, we're all ears just to to sort of close out here, um, what does the what does the future of the workshop uh, look like? Do you do you um, are you seeking out apprentices to uh, study the craft and carry it on into the next generation? Uh, yes, I mean as as you appreciate, we've had a, a number of uh, tough years at the, you know uh, more recently, um, but we've the only way to pass the craft on um is is by apprenticeships um now i, I don't mean you know a 16 year old apprentice um you know we, we we may take someone with i'll not say similar skills but as long as they have got hand good hand eye coordination and um you know they may have worked in different trades uh, that can some of the skills can be you know adapted um, mm-hmm. but we, you know, we are looking to, uh, obviously, you know, as and when necessary, take the apprentices on to pass the craft on for the next generation, um, you know, in order to, you know, keep the, uh, keep the craft alive. Well, Craig, Ken, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. No problem at all, Ben. It's been lovely to speak to you. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. We've got a pretty cool one queued up for next time, so stay tuned. In the meantime, today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delotti. Our music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm Ben Miller. Mm-hmm.